Let's begin reading in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And there were gathered together, so that there was, there many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, or in some translations, child, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and walked, went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, And this wonderful story of kindness, compassion, challenge, and insight. Uh, May we worship at your feet in the study of your scriptures. And may you open your word to us, not simply to our ears, nor even to our minds, uh, but deep down in our hearts. And may your uh, living word uh, pierce us, speak to us, comfort us, challenge us, and draw us to yourself as you are so kind to do. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. God's earliest introduction of himself to wayward humanity includes this description, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Nehemiah would later describe God this way, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There is, of course, the famous Psalm 103 which declares, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There is written into Israel's holiest day, the day of atonement, the tradition of two goats, one which is slaughtered, the substitute dying for the sins of the many, and the other 
which is carried away. It's led out into the wilderness, never to be seen or heard from again. A symbol of God carrying the sins of the people away from them, never to be seen or heard from again. Again and again, the prophets are described, or excuse me, the prophets describe God as the one who forgives and forgets the sins of man. Forgiving and forgetting is necessary because God is absolutely holy. And yet in his holiness, God magnifies his own glory by forgiving sinners of their sin. Nothing is more alien to us than holiness, and nothing is more ingrained in God's holy nature than, more so than forgiveness. Sin, that which God so generously forgives, puts us at war with God. Paul would write to the Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, speaking to Christians about their former way of life. You were dead, but you weren't just dead in your sin, you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, what did that look like? He says, well, we all walked this way, carrying out the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like all of mankind. Our sin nature puts us in direct conflict with God, and it deprives us of eternal life with God, as Paul would again write to the Romans more famous scripture, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Of all of the ills sin has imputed onto human existence, separation from God for eternity is the greatest. And so it is right to say, along with the title of today's sermon, forgiveness which leads to life is our greatest need. And in Christ Jesus, we are given the greatest gift. Well, Mark teaches us accordingly in setting the scene of something marvelous. Jesus has returned to what is now his hometown, Capernaum. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum after John the Baptist was arrested. Matthew gives us this detail. And he is here in a house. We don't know if this is Peter's house, where he also lived in Capernaum, or if this was Jesus' house that he purchased, though that seems unlikely because Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We don't know for sure. He's simply ministering in a home. And such a crowd was packed in to hear him that they were spilling out into the street. No doubt hoping to just get close enough to hear him speak or to maybe 
catch a glimpse of the now famous rabbi. Into this crowded scene comes a group of characters carrying their paralyzed friend. The crowds are obviously not interested in making way for the paralytic, says something about them, doesn't it? Such that they have to climb the back stairwell, the exterior stairwell of the house, up to the rooftop terrace, a very common feature in first century homes in Israel at the time. He was paralyzed. We don't know why. The word that's used uh, could mean he's um, uh, paralyzed from the waist down. It could mean that he was born with a, a, a defect or that he had a terrible accident. It seems to not matter as the word is not specific. Finding no way to get through, they make their way to the roof. There they tear away at the ceiling to lower their friend down to the man who they know can heal their friend. And Jesus does something remarkable. Instead of saying, get up and walk, as we have seen him assert his authority over various illnesses so far in Mark, he instead says something different. Your sins are forgiven. Now at this, we are introduced to a new group in the story, the scribes. They are scandalized by this statement, for, as they say, only God can forgive sins. So, as evidence that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, he he heals the man physically, he gets up and walks out. In fact, I love David Guzik's note on this, saying the friends were so confident that Jesus could heal him because it would be a great deal harder to haul the man up out of the house than it was to lower him down into it. They were counting on him walking out. That's how Guzik puts it. What are we to make of this story? And what is the Lord communicating through it? Well, I'd like us to first note three things. Number one, let us take note of some faithful friends. Faithful friends. I don't want to belabor this because it's not the main thrust of the text, but it It cannot be overlooked. Four things about these friends. Number one, they brought their friend to Jesus. They brought their friend to Jesus. Now, on the surface, just in a passing glance, this point of observation and application is easily made. A true friend will consistently bring you to Jesus. I had a friend of mine this week text me about some disappointment in a group thread, a handful of us. Ah, this fell through, I'm bummed out, you know. Oh, sorry, bro. And I just I just, <laughs> just heartlessly sent back this long quote from a book about the sovereignty of God over all things, <laughs> right? God is sovereign over all things. What are you crying about, right? Because I'm a heartless friend who sought to point his friend to Jesus, right? We're long time enough friends that I could simply leave the quote and say, hey, Depend on and entrust yourself to the Lord's divine providence. If a door has closed, it's for a reason. He is good. He loves you. What's the point? Well, a true friend will constantly bring you to Jesus. These men did for their friend physically what we do well for our friends spiritually. Pointing them to Christ for salvation. Pointing them to the word 
for sanctification, comparing the issues of this fallen life to the wisdom of the Bible. R. Kent Hughes speaks beautifully of friendship in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, noting that two people who share what he calls the divine perspective will be kindred spirits. The divine perspective states God is sovereign and does as he pleases, and all of life is to be lived for him. Two people who share this perspective, Hughes notes, assent to the same authority, know the same God, go the same way, long for the same things, dream the same dreams, and yearn for the same experiences of holiness and worship. I've often been asked, how is it that you had such confidence to ask Leslie to marry you after only knowing her for a month? The real question is, why did my father-in-law say yes, but that's between him and Jesus, right? But it was this shared divine perspective. We longed for the same things under God. We shared the same dreams under God. We yearned for the same experiences under God. Plus, she was pretty, so I needed to lock it up, you know? Now, if you're fortunate to have a really godly friendship or partnership, um, you know this to be true. A shared divine perspective shines on all of life's circumstances, and it points you in the same direction. Real friends point one another to Jesus. Secondly, let's note they dug an opening. They, they brought their friend to Jesus, and they dug an opening. Uh, a first century flat-top roof would be very different than our sloped, shingled roofs today. The, the flat-top terraced roof was like the second story. It was open uh, to the sky above, and it was used as a spare bedroom. It was used as a, another meeting space, a place to lounge, enjoy the sunlight, or perhaps just get some fresh air. And the, the buildings were very commonly built. They had you know, large rafters that would go one way across the structure, and then laid perpendicular across those, stra- those rafters would be just large sticks. And on that large sticks would be thatch, you know, reeds and smaller twigs caked with mud and then topped with either like topsoil and grass or with a layer of tile that was sloped just enough to drain the water. And so these men, literally it says they dug <laughs> you would need some shovels and some hands, and you'd probably get a little mud underneath your fingernails. They dug through the roofs. In fact, um, one historian notes that roofs in this style and at this time could be peeled back, disassembled, and then put back together with little or no damage. So it wasn't like they were committing an act of vandalism even, just based on the construction of the homes. The key to this is that their determination evidenced confidence in Jesus. Their determination evidenced confidence in Jesus. This is the whole faith works paradox that James speaks about in his letter to the church. He says, you have faith, I'll show you my faith. 
by my works. Faith without works is dead. The works, to loosely borrow the terminology, are the carrying, the climbing, the digging, the lowering. The faith was the invisible, unseen, internal confidence that Jesus can heal our friend. But what good is the confidence that Jesus can heal if it's not accompanied by the determination to do whatever it takes to get the friend to Jesus? This is James's point. It wasn't their determination that Jesus noticed. He saw their determination. He saw their grit. No, it says he saw their faith. Yeah. But how did Jesus see their invisible confidence that he could heal? Well, through their works. (laughs) It's a strange dichotomy, isn't it? The Greek word that's used there that says Jesus saw their faith, it's the, it's the word edon, which comes from the root word that means to become visible. And so faith, unaccompanied by works, simply proves itself to be false, dead, lifeless, a hollow profession. No better than the belief of demons that cannot save them from wrath. Now, these friends were determined, and Jesus noticed he saw their faith. And that's the third thing that we would note about these friends, that Jesus observed their faith. Their faith. Isn't it interesting that the language directly implies it was more than the faith of the paralyzed man? I mean, we can read it again just to be clear. When Jesus, verse 5, saw their faith. And I did a Greek word study. I went back to the original language to see if this was just something in translation that sort of spoke of a particular group. No, it's very specific. The story is told. Jesus saw there. It's a plural noun, not because they identify as they, them, but because it was more than one individual. Jesus saw their faith. There's more than the faith of the paralyzed man that Jesus noticed. In many other New Testament references where a person's faith is tied to their healing, it is individually expressed. I've got like 13 references noted here in my notes from Matthew and Mark and Acts and James and Luke. Individual faith expressed. His faith, her faith, perceiving his faith, perceiving her faith. Never have I seen such faith as I have seen in this individual And yet it was their faith that Jesus noticed. Oh, that we would long for and be so blessed by God to have a friend or two like this in life. For your joy, I pray this for you. And for your own sake, may you pray for this great gift from your Father to have friends who share your faith. And lastly, may we long to be this kind of friend to others. In fact, it's often been said that you can't, you can't really have good friends unless you're willing to first be a good friend. So, I thought it was four things. It's only three things. That's it. It's not the main thrust of the passage anyway. But boy, what a great gift 
that this man had faithful friends. Secondly, we should note something that I'm calling a code violation. A code violation. Uh, we're all familiar with building codes. These things are written in stone. They are, they are hard. They are often inflexible and immovable. Since Jesus is the giver of the law, as God incarnate, it is against him that all sin is committed. And only the one who was sinned against can offer forgiveness. Right? In fact, um, this happens in, in the home. One child might offend their mother, disobedience or backtalking. Then they'll go to the other parent, conversation. They'll say, yeah, sorry, Dad, you know. And I'll say, don't tell me. It was your mom who you sinned against. You go tell her that you're sorry, right? The one who has been sinned against must extend the offer of forgiveness, and this is the, the essence of the code. In Psalm 51, David expresses his sorrow, his confession, and his remorse after the adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the conspiracy to have her husband Uriah killed on the battlefield. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love against you. You only have I sinned. And you got to think Bathsheba was like in the other corner as he was singing. The, and she goes, really? I can think of a few other people that you sinned against. Right? I mean, we read that story and we think, what the heck are you thinking, Dave? Right? What do you mean against you and you only have I sinned? You violated this woman. You murdered this man who's counted among your faithful friends and mighty men of valor in the text of Scripture. Well, the key is this. Only God, who is the lawgiver, has had his laws violated. Therefore, only God's forgiveness can redeem. See, this doesn't negate sin from man to man nor does it even minimize it, it actually magnifies it. Sin from man to man is viewed by God as a direct assault on his law against his person. And just to demonstrate this, man can forgive fellow man but he'll still die in his sin and suffer the consequences unless God forgives him for violating his law. In this we see, regardless of why the man is paralyzed, he is a sinner, a violator of God's law. Man might have pity on him, man might forgive him, but unless God forgives him, his sin remains on him. This was a terrible thing Jesus said, unless he's God. It's a terrible thing. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked 
and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Romans 4 tells us that God and God alone can declare the ungodly pure on the basis of a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul explains this in great detail, going back to Abraham and how his faith was counted to him as righteousness and how you too can have righteousness counted to you by faith on the basis of one thing and one thing only, a confession in Christ our Lord. Romans 4 is wonderful. It's great homework. You know, you, you, go, to a, you go to a college lecture or in a high school class or it's all there's always follow up you know write a paper write an essay go read these chapters Romans chapter 4 man as we think on the righteousness extended to us by faith and what was required because justice was satisfied in Jesus Christ who died in the sinner's place. On the basis of justice being served, God can forgive sinners. The code was violated, but someone paid the penalty. And so those sinners can escape hell and enjoy forgiveness and eternal life who profess their faith in Jesus and are given that which they do not deserve. The very words from Jesus spoken to the paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven. Thus the man's greatest need was met by God's greatest gift. Yet while he was still yet paralyzed in his body. Now this scandalized the scribes. Uh, they no doubt knew Isaiah chapter 43, 25 which reads... From the voice of God himself saying, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. They knew the scriptures. Now it should be noted that these scribes were likely members of what's called the Sanhedrin. And one of the tasks of the Sanhedrin was to test the theology of up-and-coming teachers in Israel. The Sanhedrin was, if you will, the supreme court of the Jews. And one of the great functions was to be strict guardians of orthodoxy. They don't want any wrong thinking to reinvade Israel and pervert the people such was the ancient error, right? We have to remember that everything in the life and time of Jesus is, is that, that several hundred years after the repopulating of Jerusalem, after being expelled by the armies that were the hammer of God's justice because of ancient Israel's perversion, sin, idolatry, lack of orthodoxy. And so in the reestablishment of Jerusalem from Nehemiah forward, there was an incredible zeal to not replace, repeat the mistakes of the past. 
leading them to develop these organized groups and official roles. And so you might say these men were likely dispatched from the headquarters to go and hear this new famous teacher. He's having remarkable influence. Crowds are coming to gather him. There are reports of these miraculous signs. Go, watch, listen, analyze his words carefully. Compare them to the text of Scripture. Should he be in violation of spreading wrong thinking, you come back and let us know. It's their job to police it. By declaring the man forgiven, Jesus was acclaiming, he was claiming equality with God. Now, Jesus didn't say, I am God here, but he's acting in a way that only God can act. Jesus says something that only God has the right to say. And if we're patient with these members of the Sanhedrin, we might conclude they are rightly scandalized. Yes, Jesus' fame is spreading due to his insightful teaching and miraculous healings, but these men are here to investigate. They're here to check heresy, to listen carefully. They are the keepers of the truth, concerned for truth, concerned for what is right and what is true and is being spread among the impressionable people of God. We should not yet assume malice in the hearts of these particular men. If we were there, trained under the law, and we heard a man, miraculous and wise as he may be, claim the authority to forgive sins, we would rightly respond in the same way. In many ways, they are right to be scandalized. Because this is what it comes down to. Either this healer is a charlatan who is hired people to pretend to be sick and miraculously be made well, who has just now blasphemed the holy God, which is a crime punishable by death in Hebrew law. Or, either that, okay, or the God of all creation has wrapped himself in flesh and he looks like an unimpressive version of me. Which of those two things is more likely? Which of those two things would seem more plausible to you if you were to put yourself in these men's shoes? We might further appreciate that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't call them a brood of vipers or whitewashed tombs as in other places where the Pharisees are actively antagonistic towards him. Instead, perceiving their thoughts... He offers proof of his authority to forgive sins by healing the man's paralysis. Always the persuader, right? Even in holding the line of truth, Jesus extends grace to the repentant. We know from historical record that many former Pharisees and priests and scribes and Sanhedrin members would go on to become Christians. 3,000 Jews were 
saved on the day of Pentecost. We know that many of the Pharisees and the scribes who would know the word the best, who would go on to become Christians, are the natural pastors in the early church. They're the ones with all the education, right? Some of these members, perhaps one of these men, who sat in this room that day, are counted among them. And when Jesus perceives their offense, he offers further reason to trust him. He doesn't compromise, but he also doesn't push them away. We might do well to remember these men when we interact with those who are hostile toward the gospel today. The Apostle Paul was hostile, and then he was converted, and then he was called, and then he sacrificially served the church and our Savior. Who's to say that angry person on your college campus won't one day be the same? Who's to say your short-sighted son-in-law won't one day be the same? Who's to say the vicious and greedy boss won't be like the tax collector who repented after encountering Jesus? There is no limit to the change in character when the heart is relieved of sin by Christ. This hope ought to ever be before us as we engage a world, a family, and neighbors who are far from Christ but desperately need his forgiveness. Well, from faithful friends to this violation of God's code and Jesus proving his authority to forgive sins by the miraculous healing. I love the question, by the way. Which is easier, to say something or to do something? And he's sort of arguing from the lesser to the greater, right? It's easier to just say something, right? It's easier to say, you will be blessed, right? And you leave this room, nothing's changed, but you think, well, he said, you'll be blessed. Well, you can't You can't test that. You can't count it. You can't calculate it. So Jesus said, which is easier, to say something or to do something? So to prove to you that I have the authority to say something, here, I'll do something. And this is important because of number three, there is this physical and spiritual connection in the Hebrew mind. There is a physical and spiritual connection. Here it comes. Watch. There you go. Told you. This physical and spiritual connection is ingrained in the mind of the Hebrew. Uh, You might remember in John chapter 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In their mind... There is not a third option. There are only two reasons why this man might be blind. His sin or his parents' sin. So, which was it? Right? And like a magician, Jesus comes out with like a third option, you know? The assumption in the Jewish mind was that physical suffering was a direct result of a sinful act. Not 
merely sinfulness in general, but a particular sinful action. Eliphaz, the Temanite, argued with Job along these lines. Remember, he said, who that was innocent ever perished. This while Job saying, I haven't sinned. I'm, he wasn't claiming perfection. He offered sacrifices for his own sins and for that of his children. But he was saying, I haven't, there isn't a specific willful act that can be attributed to my suffering. And his friend is like, everyone knows this, bro. No one goes through what you're going through without a deliberate, willful act associated with it. Just confess, dude. Right? This was ingrained in the Jewish mind. It was ingrained in the ancient mind. The old rabbis had a saying, there is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. And didn't the Gentile inhabitants of the island of Malta have a similar ancient belief? There's Paul shipwrecked on the island from the storm with his fellow prisoners and guards and they're gathering firewood, and Paul throws a bundle of sticks into the fire, and out of the fire jumps a viper and clamps onto Paul's hand. And we read that the locals saw that and went, oh, right? They said, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Physical and spiritual connection. Three things Jesus did here by way of worship and conclusion to speak to that physical and spiritual connection. Number one, Jesus conveys God's forgiveness. Jesus conveys God's forgiveness. I love the author of Hebrews. You know, he says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God has been revealing himself. I mean, Paul talked about it being written in the stars and in creation and the beauty of life and in the, the breeze on your face and the, the rays of sunshine on your skin. And long ago in many ways, right? And then here's God with, with miraculous power and signs that, that go down in history forever. He rescues his people out of the promised land and immediately does what? reveals himself in the giving of his law. And over time, as Israel became a nation, God blessed them and gave to Solomon this miraculous wisdom. The prophets would speak on behalf of God and their words would be affirmed by miraculous signs and healings and even raising people from the dead. Long ago, in many ways... And then he turns and he says, but, (laughs) but in Jesus, we see the fullness, right? It's the idea. God was speaking and revealing and here and here and here, but now, but now we have Jesus. It's a deep, a deep longing, I think. For us to, um, to, to know the face of God, right? 
why is it, why is it that, that seeing a friend or a loved one and grabbing on to them, why is that so moving an event for us? Why, is it, why isn't it sufficient to speak to them over a text message or a phone call or a written letter? Why their physical embrace? Why their physical form? Why do we long for and love and, and just cherish a moment where we see their smiling face looking at us? What is that? What is that? It can only be this human longing to see the face of our God. It can only be this image-bearing nature of God in us, longing, craving to see Him. I remember um, years ago, uh, when life was busy and, and very young children, my boss said, hey, I, uh, let's, let's take this meeting outside. I want to get some fresh air. And as we walked outside, there was my best friend who had flown across the country uh, just at a random time to come for a visit. And it was so shocking and overwhelming. I didn't know what to do but to just like weep on the spot, you know. I could talk to this friend anytime I wanted to. I could call him up. He would answer, text message, send funny videos to each other, whatever. But his physical presence there was so moving and life-giving. Ah, friends, this can only be our longing to see the face of our Father expressed and enjoyed on a small scale, man-to-man, right? Here, Jesus conveys God's forgiveness, He offers, if you will, a glimpse of the face of the Father to his children. As David was spoken to by the prophet Nathan, saying, The Lord has put away your sins. Nathan wasn't forgiving. He was simply conveying God's forgiveness. And this is certainly true here of Jesus, though it's not the whole truth. But he was conveying the character of the Father. Secondly, he was acting as God's representative. Acting as his his representative. Jesus said in John 5, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, of course, that's striking for, for those who are skeptical. They like Jesus, but they don't like God. They like the Jesus who heals and who loves people. They don't like the God of the Old Testament who's all like rules and rules and death and murder, and, right? But Jesus says the Father judges no one. I'm the judge. It'll be Jesus who sits on the throne of judgment in eternity. The same Jesus with the nails in his hand, open arms, of gracious forgiveness, It's the same hand that points to eternal damnation, those who die in their sins and their rejection of him and his gracious gift. It's the same hand. It's the same Jesus. 
If judgment is committed to Jesus, then so too must be forgiveness, right? And then thirdly, Jesus is displaying the attitude of God toward men. He's displaying the attitude of God toward men. The whole essence, I love this phrasing from uh, one pastor back in the 19th century, the whole essence of Jesus' life is that we clearly see the Father. (laughs) Jesus literally brought men God's forgiveness on earth, right? This heavenly gift was brought down into our filth and passed out among us. Without Jesus, we could not know the enormity of God's love, his forgiveness, his character, his tenderness, his firmness. And thus, there are no sweeter words that would ring in our ears than those from Jesus saying, child, your sins are forgiven. Well, may we long for, look forward to, and respond to the overture of his grace such that those words do indeed ring in our ears. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for what you have accomplished for us. Uh, You have proven that that you are a God of love and compassion as you displayed yourself in Exodus 34. You have only proven that and backed that up in the incarnation of Jesus, in his words and in his deeds. And so, Father, we thank you for this grand display and for these sweet words that have come at such a high cost. May we relish and with tears of joy be thankful as we embrace and enjoy the words from our Savior, your sins are forgiven. In Christ's name we pray all these things.